Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. Not only were you expected to be joyful at all times, but if you weren't, the kind of underlying insinuation was that there was something wrong with you, that you hadn't prayed hard enough, that you weren't trusting Jesus enough. And I'm this young teenager who's going through a really traumatic puberty experience, and I'm not feeling happy all the time. And so then I'm also not feeling like I can talk about not feeling happy, which just makes me feel even more isolated. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to be speaking with Shannon T.L. Kearns. He's an ordained priest, playwright, theologian, and the co-founder of QueerTheology.com, which has reached more than a million people all over the world through videos, articles, online courses, and community. Father Kearns is a recipient of the Playwrights Center Jerome Fellowship in 2020-21, is the recipient of a Lambda Literary Fellowship in 2019, and is a Finnovation Fellow in 2019-2020. Father Kearns is a sought-after speaker on transgender issues and religion. Today we're talking about his recent book, In the Margins, A Transgender Man's Journey Through Scripture. Father Shannon T.L. Kearns, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really grateful and excited to be here. Thank you. I want to start out by asking you about the structure of this book, and particularly how you move through each of the chapters. And I'm going to take a moment and describe that to our listeners. So when a chapter in your book, In the Margins, begins, you tell a bit of your own journey and story. And then after a few pages of that, you turn around and you use that experience as a lens through which to reread a Bible story. It might be a a story of Jesus's journey in the wilderness or Joseph's experiences in Genesis 37 through 50. And then at the end of the chapter, you turn back around again using this rereading of this Bible story, and you think again about your own experiences in light of what the readers and you have learned through the rereading of this story. I found that to be a fantastic way of framing each of these chapters. I will say here at the outset of the conversation, I learned a great deal about stories that I thought that I knew well by rereading them through your experiences, but I wanted to step back and give you an opportunity to talk about what it was like and how you came up with this particular way of arranging this approach to the book. Yeah, this is this is both often how I preach by telling personal stories and retelling Bible stories and then inviting a community to re-envision and rethink together about our own story. But it was also found that I can't tell my own story without telling Bible stories too. I grew up so, so interwoven with the church has been so much a part of my life that it's almost impossible for me to talk about my own story without also telling Bible stories or talking about Christian pop culture or all of those things. And so it felt really natural to start the book this way. But I also hoped that it would give people an anchor in that that through my story, they would be invited in to think about their own story and to rethink about Bible stories, and that it would lower people's defenses to to thinking theologically 
through a transgender lens. I appreciate especially what you said right there at the end of that answer, giving people an invitation to lower their defenses. And maybe we should begin to set these pieces in place at the outset of our conversation. It's right there in the subtitle of your book, A Transgender Man's Journey with Scripture. So you are presenting yourself and presenting these readings through that identification, through that lens. And I I wonder, when we're talking about inviting people to lower their defenses, I wonder how you were thinking about what the reader might be experiencing as they came into this book. I guess, how were you imagining your audience in the process of crafting this book as you began to write it and as you were working with your editors? Yeah, it was really important to me to write a book that wasn't a trans 101 book. I didn't want, because I feel like we have those books and that they're really, really amazing. And so I didn't want to write a defense of being transgender through a scriptural lens. I I didn't want to look at those passages necessarily. I really wanted to instead show how when we read scripture from a really unique identity, that it not only opens up something for other people who share that identity, so in my case, other white trans men, but it actually opens up something for everyone. And that reading scripture through a unique lens has the possibility to change how all of us read scripture. And so I, I assumed that there would be some people that just wouldn't even pick up this book because they are not interested in doing that. And that's fine. But I hoped that most of the folks reading this book are people who consider themselves allies or want to be working in solidarity with the trans community, who are trans or LGBTQ plus themselves, and who are longing to bring their whole selves to scripture and are looking for a model to do that. And I was hoping that this book could be a bit of that model. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Father Shannon T.L. Kearns. He's an ordained priest, playwright, theologian, and the co-founder of QueerTheology.com, which has reached more than a million people all over the world through videos, articles, online courses, and community. Today, we're talking about his recent book, In the Margins, A Transgender Man's Journey with Scripture. Well, I'm thinking about what you just said about the fact that you imagined that there were certain readers who would never pick up your book in the first place. And then you imagined that those who did engage with your book would find value in reading, and it's right there in the title, reading from the margins or reading in the margins. And I think about, for example, the post-colonial work of Miguel de la Torre or others who, who really are committed to finding ways to read with the vulnerable and read with vulnerability. And I think that is a very, that is a very challenging way for Americans, typically, uh, typically <laughs> Christian Americans to come to scripture. And I'd like to ask you about that vulnerability. What did you learn about the process of Bible reading by your own engagement with and your own journey with vulnerability? And this is an incredibly vulnerable book for me. I'm sharing some stories in it that I've never shared anywhere else. And it felt really important to do that, to to really be open and honest, to talk about what it was like to grow up a fundamentalist evangelical, to grow up in a space where I didn't have language or role models in the trans community. I didn't have any language really around gender. And I think it's so important to do that because the Bible was written by real people in real places, in real points in history. And it's their record of trying to grapple with their understanding of the divine. And there are vulnerable stories in scripture. And it felt like in order to really engage faithfully and honestly and intellectually with these texts that I had to bring my whole self to this work and to be really vulnerable and honest. And I've also found that when other people do that, when they feel permission 
to bring their whole selves to the text, that something really incredible gets opened up. And that when we only approach the text at a distance as holding it at arm's length as this scholarly thing that we're just parsing words and stories and meanings, that we actually miss a lot. And that it's only when we can be vulnerable with the text that we can really unlock it all and see how it still applies so beautifully and so powerfully and so challengingly today. And so it felt important to do that and to be vulnerable and to be honest about my own story and how scripture intersects with that. I'm so grateful for that answer, and there's several points that I want to dig in and ask more, but I think here is where I want to begin with that. You mentioned a moment ago that you were you were giving an invitation to the reader to bring their whole selves to the text, both to the text of your book in the margins, but also to the texts of Scripture. And I'm thinking about a moment in one of the chapters in your book in the margins where you talk about your own journey, and as you are thinking about your sexuality, your sexual identity, and this is before even you've begun to think about your gender identity, it is very clear to you that there's a narrative in your evangelical community that Christians must feel and perform joy. And you were saying there in the chapter that you didn't feel joy, and you understood that when you were there and smiling, you were putting on a show. And I'm paraphrasing here, so feel free to correct my language, but I'm thinking about that imperative to be joyous even when you don't feel joy as a kind of cancellation of the whole self that you were just talking about inviting readers to bring. And now when I make those connections and those parallels, am I understanding properly the mechanisms you're putting in place here, or would you say this in a different way? No, that's absolutely right. I remember so vividly being 13, 14, 15 I was obsessed with Christian pop music at the time, and every single song was happy. And if there was a problem, it was fixed by the last chorus. And that that was just such an encapsulation of the entire culture that I was living in, where not only were you expected to be joyful at all times, but if you weren't, the kind of underlying insinuation was that there was something wrong with you, that you hadn't prayed hard enough, that you weren't trusting Jesus enough. And I'm this young teenager who's going through a really traumatic puberty experience and I'm not feeling happy all the time. And so then I'm also not feeling like I can talk about not feeling happy, which just makes me feel even more isolated. And I think that really, that hindered how I was able to approach scripture, approach my church, approach my faith, because I felt like I couldn't be honest about questions I was having or about things I was struggling with. And that instead, I had to perform whatever was expected of me, whether that be joy, whether that be one specific understanding of how to read scripture, or one specific understanding of a Bible story. And it really shut me down because I I couldn't engage fully because I wasn't allowed to engage fully. And when you use that language of it shut you down, I as we're moving towards our first break, I'm wanting to ask, what was, now that you're on the other side of this and you've begun to heal from some of these narratives that you were exposed to when you were 12, 13, 14 years old, I want to ask you, in hindsight, what are some of the lingering effects that happen when a community does this, when a community demands a certain performance of happiness and joy, despite what the interior experience really is? Now that you can look back on that with some stability, and I hope with some safety, how would you describe the lingering effects of that kind of community expectation? I think two of the big things were, one, I learned that I couldn't trust myself, um, that I couldn't trust my own intuition. I couldn't trust my own mind and body and spirit. I couldn't trust my own relationship with the divine. And that took a really long time to, to unpack and undo. And two, I, I was taught that I couldn't ask questions. And there was a real kind of frowning upon learning and learning from people that I might not agree with, right? The voices I was allowed to let in were very restricted. And so it took a long time to realize that I can read books that I might disagree with, that it's okay to grapple with ideas and texts. It's okay to disagree with an author 
It's okay to hold really precious ideas up to the light and see if they withstand the scrutiny. And that that isn't bad work. That's actually holy work and faithful work. And it's really important for us to do. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Father Shannon T.L. Kearns. He's an ordained priest, playwright, theologian, and the co-founder of QueerTheology.com, which has reached more than a million people all over the world through videos, articles, online courses, and community. Today, we're talking about his recent book, In the Margins, A Transgender Man's Journey with Scripture. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Father Shannon T.L. Kearns. He's an ordained priest, playwright, theologian, and the co-founder of QueerTheology.com, which has reached more than a million people all over the world through videos, articles, online courses, and community. Today we're talking about his recent book, In the Margins, A Transgender Man's Journey with Scripture. Earlier in our conversation, you talked about how when you were moving through your teenage years and thinking about who you were and how you fit into your evangelical community and into the wider community, you didn't have uh, language. And you also, in your book In the Margins, talk about not really having models for this kind of reflection and this kind of introspection. But you then, you begin to discover some, and one in particular is the comedian and talk show host, Ellen DeGeneres. And I I want to begin this part of our conversation by asking about how Ellen DeGeneres served as a kind of lens, a model, kind of figure for you that you could think with, and how that wasn't available for you within your community? And I'm not exactly sure I'm asking the question in the right way, so maybe we can start with a response and see if if it's getting us to where we need to go, but we'll see where it goes. But I, want, I kind of want to start there, and I'm not even sure what question I'm fully asking you. Yeah, so I think it's important to remember, I was 16 when Ellen DeGeneres came out, so I'm watching her show probably when I'm 14, 15, into 16. I'm living in rural Pennsylvania, We don't have the internet. Everything is 30 minutes away from me and I'm homeschooled. (laughs) So when we talk about what lens I have to the world, it's three channels on our TV with rabbit ears and that's it. Like we didn't have cable. And so I didn't, I wasn't exposed to anything that was happening in the world, in the LGBTQ plus movement. I didn't know any people that were coming out. My community was very conservative. And I remember watching Ellen's show. We watched as a family and and feeling like I could see in her something of myself. I am a young person who has short hair, who's always wearing baggy clothes, who's not really interested in dating boys. And then there's Ellen on my TV who has short hair and wears baggy clothes, men's clothes, and isn't dating boys. And so just seeing that there was an adult who reflected the way that I was starting to understand myself was really vital for me. I didn't have any understanding really or language around sexuality or gender. And so all I knew was like, I see in Ellen something of myself. And so it was really challenging when she came out because I was really worried that her naming herself as gay would then cause other people to see in me what they now were seeing in her, that it was somehow going to make me visible in a way. And I also remember feeling, oh, crap, like, if she's gay, does that mean I'm gay? What does this mean? Does this mean that I can't grow up to be like Ellen and to be okay? 
And it was a really challenging time in my life. And again, and I felt like I had lost the one role model that I had, and I didn't really know what to do with that. And I didn't feel like I could talk about without anyone either. And that was even harder. So there are layers here, and I'm so grateful for that answer to my question, because as I understand what you just said, you were looking at Ellen DeGeneres and saying, ah, here's a person who is dressing the way that I wish to dress, who is wearing their hair the way that I wish to to wear my hair, who is presenting a certain approach to relationships with men in the way that I feel. But you were invested in her having a certain type of, and forgive this word, a certain type of normalcy. In other words, oh, look, someone can do all that and still be straight and normal. And then when she began to express, to use your language, her full self, when she began to say, no, actually, I'm a lesbian, I'm attracted to women, that was in some way challenging for you because it began to unravel that narrative of I can do this and still be an I can't flag this on radio the way that I want to. I'm scare quoting this with my fingers. I can still do this and be normal. And I, as I'm saying these words back to you, they're my words, they're not yours. I'm taking your experience and paraphrasing it into my understanding. And so I want to know where have I got this right and where would you say it differently? No, that's exactly it. I was looking for a sign that I could both be myself and also still fit in and have a place in my evangelical world and family, which did mean being quote unquote normal or heterosexual, that there was, I didn't feel like there was any other choice for me, that the only way to retain ties and community was to be like everyone else. And looking around, I thought everyone else is heterosexual, else is aligned with their the the sex that they were assigned at birth, everyone else is going to grow up. And I needed to figure out if I could do that and still express this part of me that felt different from the folks around me. I'm so grateful, first of all, for your trusting me to ask you these questions. And now I want to use what we've just said about Ellen DeGeneres as a way of pivoting into what you're doing in your book, In the Margins. Because as I see it, The mechanism we've just described, looking at a certain non-whole reading of Ellen DeGeneres as she was presenting herself on her sitcom and saying, oh, I can identify with that and still be, and again, I'm scare quoting, normal and straight, and then having Ellen come into her fullness of expressing herself and that being rupture for you as a viewer and maybe for others as viewers. I think you're doing something similar with these stories from Scripture. Because you are inviting us into stories that oftentimes have been read, and again, I'm flagging with scare quotes, a kind of straight and normal reading that evangelicals and others who are in mainline churches come away from these stories with. And you're inviting these characters and inviting these stories to come more fully into their whole selves. And in the process, there's a disruption for us. And I'd love to spend some time in our conversation talking about those disruptions. And let's start maybe with some of the most visible characters that trouble our expectations, the characters that we call by the general term, the eunuchs in scripture. I wonder if you talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I love the eunuchs all throughout scripture. And I was so stunned to really only discover them as an adult. And this is as someone who read the Bible a lot when I was a kid and who even did Bible quizzing, if folks even know what that is. And so it was shocking to me that I had missed all of these stories of eunuchs. And we find them, like I said, all throughout scripture in Deuteronomy. They're talked about in the book of Esther, in Isaiah, in the Newer Testament, in the book of Acts in particular. And I want to start by saying that I think it's really dangerous to read modern identities back into scripture. And so I want to be cautious about saying that eunuchs are a direct correlation to trans folks. And that's how anyone who is talked about as a eunuch in the Bible would have identified, because I don't think that's true. And also, I think that there are similarities of eunuchs as people who are existing outside of binary gender norms, right? They're existing outside of the world's 
of male and female policed in how they're treated by their communities. Eunuchs are considered other gendered, another gender, a third gender. And for many of them, that was due to violence, that the violence that was inflicted on them as people that were taken into exile, particularly in the Hebrew scriptures. But when we look at these stories of eunuchs, of people existing outside of these gender binaries, we find also that there is a real deep faithfulness in these communities that in the book of Esther in particular, they're the ones that are passing messages back and forth between spaces. And then we also find this conversation where in Deuteronomy, the eunuchs are forbidden to enter the temple and to worship. But then in Isaiah, we have this beautiful passage where God tells the eunuchs, I'm going to give you a name better than sons and daughters. And it's just this, it's this internal conversation in scripture about who's in and who's out. And that these communities are grappling with who's in and who's out. And when I looked at those stories, it's, oh, I can see my own story in this, my own story of trying to figure out where I fit as far as as gender goes. But then also the communities that have had conversations about me, and by me, I also mean all trans folks about whether or not we can be included, whether or not we're allowed to worship, whether or not we can hold on to our identities and still be considered people of faith. And so there's so much resonance for me in these stories of humans. And I think that it behooves all of us who are talking about and thinking about gendered inclusion for women, for trans folks, for non-binary folks that we look more closely at these eunuch stories. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Father Shannon T. L. Kearns. He's an ordained priest, playwright, theologian, and the co-founder of QueerTheology.com, which has reached more than a million people all over the world through videos, articles, online courses, and community. Today we're talking about his recent book, In the Margins, A Transgender Man's Journey with Scripture. I want to linger with the eunuchs for just a moment longer because you line out in the chapter where you deal with this so clearly that the eunuchs were part of the trauma of exile. They were leaders and others who had been forcibly castrated when they were taken into exile in Babylon. And then when the exile was lifted a generation later, they came back into a community that literally had no place for them, would not allow them to worship, could not even find really language or imagination for them. And you talk about Isaiah being a moment where God reimagines a place for them in the community. And I want to begin to introduce the idea of how trauma plays into all of this, where violence and the effects of violence really begin to not only affect bodies, individuals, but also bodies in terms of communities of worship, bodies in terms of communities of understanding. Talk to us about trauma. Yeah, there's, there's so much trauma, I think, for queer and trans kids who grew up in evangelical churches, but not just queer and trans kids. I think of anyone who was identified as female and boys too, although often the trauma exhibits an encounter, they encounter it in different ways. That there was so there was so much language about what bodies were good bodies and what we were allowed to do with our bodies and how we should shrink down our bodies and be pure with our bodies. And and I know for many of us who grew up in that culture, what that served to do was divorce us from our bodies because we felt afraid of our desires. We felt afraid of our gender. We felt afraid of expressing desire and affection with other people. And so that divorce between body and spirit is something that was really writ large in my life. And I remember thinking a lot that that my disconnect with my body, my desire to just be a spirit was 
holy because it was more pure, right? That the flesh was weak and evil and our spirits were good. And so that my desire to not be in my body was actually making me more holy than people around me. Instead of when I now understand this, like, no, that desire to flee from my body was because I was completely divorced from my body that I couldn't grapple with it. And that that was trauma. I had this really important conversation with a therapist not too long ago where he was talking about that there are two types of trauma. There's like the cataclysmic moment that, and that's what we often think of when we think of trauma, this really impactful moment. But there's also chronic trauma, which is a long-term persistent experience of trauma. And I think a lot of us who grew up in communities where we couldn't be our full selves, where we knew that who our full selves were not acceptable, that we did have this experience of chronic trauma, this long-term persistent trauma that displays in really different ways, but is still traumatic and still takes healing and and that we have to look at that and name that as trauma before we can start that healing process. Thank you for that answer. And there's, again, so much there to dig into. This notion of trauma, when we look at the eunuchs, the trauma is literally written on their bodies. Their physicality has been changed by this experience of mutilation. But I, this makes me then think of Genesis 37 through 50 and the way that you read and reread the Joseph narrative. And for those that are unfamiliar or don't recall, this is the Joseph and the Coat of Many Colors, or if you like Broadway, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat story. And I have done a lot of work on that narrative from Genesis 37 through 50 in my academic life. I just want to say, first of all, thank you, because in your book, In the Margins, that chapter on Joseph made me rethink and reread that story in a new way, even though I've been working on it for 25 years. I'm incredibly grateful for that. But in in the Joseph moment, what you're showing us is a person who has no physical scars of trauma and yet is deeply traumatized by the experiences he's been through. I wonder if you talk to us a little bit about how you read and reread the Joseph narrative here. Yeah, I love this Joseph story. And I am indebted to other scholars who have also done work around this Joseph story, particularly about that many-colored coat. There are some scholars who have talked about the language used is a princess dress. And so there there are folks who talk about that the fact that Joseph's dad gave him a princess dress. And that is the thing that inspired rage in his brothers. And I think when I read this story, whether or not you agree with the princess dress interpretation, there are other folks who, who don't agree with that translation. It is clear that there is something about Joseph that makes his brothers angry beyond him just being a favorite son, that there is something about the way that he carries himself in his body, that there is something about the way that he forms relationships, that he spends more time with the women in his family. And the fact that the his father is so is so interested in that and interested in his for lack of a better word, flamboyance. And so I see like young, queer, and transness written all over this story. And we do have this experience then for him of trauma where he is attacked by his brothers, where he is left for dead and then sold into slavery and then also has experiences as an enslaved person where he has to figure out how to not draw attention to himself. And he learns in a lot of ways to tamp down and hide some of his flamboyance, and yet it keeps coming up. And I think those of us who grew up in communities where we tried to hide who we were, but also who had a light in us that couldn't be snuffed out, that we understand this experience of trying to fit in and not even no matter how hard we try, that some something in us keeps showing up and is trying to, and other people try to enact violence on us because of that thing that keeps keeps shining. And so looking at this Joseph narrative, there's a lot of folks that kind of focus on the final 
one of the final verses of Joseph's story, what you had intended for harm, God intended for good, as this way of saying, well, like your trauma doesn't matter because God intended it for good. And I think that I really wanted to put a pin in that and say, I can look at my life and all of the trauma that I've experienced and see how it led me to this place that I am today, which is a place of wholeness and healing and health. And also look at that trauma and say, that wasn't actually not of God. That was something that was bad and sinful and wrong that was inflicted upon me. And so even though I'm grateful to be where I am today, that our experience of oppression and of being oppressed is not a holy and good thing, even if it leads somewhere good. Before we go to break, I want to ask one other piece about the Joseph story. And this is something that you don't take up in your book, In the Margins, but it really laid the table for me to come to this. Because at the end, the very end of the Joseph narrative in Genesis 37 through 50, it sets up what happens in Exodus. Because we're told that the Israelites literally sell themselves into complete slavery for the sake of survival under the regime that Joseph has helped to set up. And as you reread these passages, I found myself realizing in some ways the trauma response that Joseph was living through, having been brutalized by his brothers, leads to the enslavement and the violence towards an entire nation later in the book of Exodus. And I just want to ask you about those moments of undealt with trauma and how they they don't just visit themselves back on the body of the person who's been traumatized, but they can have ripple effects throughout the entire community. I wonder what you think about that. And when I say that to you, how does that sound to you? I think that's absolutely true. And we've seen that over and over again in movements, in people, in communities. And I think that so much of so many scripture stories are also about that, right? About how this undealt with trauma gets passed down. Think of Abraham and Isaac and their story and this, these generations of, of family trauma. And I think that for those of us who have found healing, part of our responsibility is to stop the trauma, right? That it, it has to stop in us so that it doesn't keep getting passed down. And for those of us in marginalized communities who are still experiencing trauma, we have to figure out how to not inflict that trauma on other people and also not play out that trauma intracommunally. That it's, that it's really important for us to figure out what it means to engage with one another in a healthy way how we can move toward healing and wholeness. And I think within each marginalized community, that's our own conversation to have. And also it's so vital that we be doing that work so that trauma stops with us and so that we stop passing it on. Because I think you're right that it can very easily be passed on and can continue to set up new ways and people who are marginalized and oppressed. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Father Shannon T. L. Kearns. He's an ordained priest, playwright, theologian, and the co-founder of QueerTheology.com, which has reached more than a million people all over the world through videos, articles, online courses, and community. Today, we're talking about his recent book, In the Margins, A Transgender Man's Journey with Scripture. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Father Shannon T. L. Kearns. He's an ordained priest, playwright, theologian, and the co-founder of QueerTheology.com, which has reached more than a million people all over the world through videos, articles, online courses, and community. Today we're talking about his recent book, In the Margins, A Transgender Man's Journey with Scripture. Well, I want to turn now to a pair of chapters in your book, In the Margins, where you Ask us as readers to reread with you the stories of 
Jesus. And in particular, let's start with Jesus going into the wilderness. I was struck by one particular phrase from your book in the margins, where you are looking at Jesus in the wilderness and you say, like Jesus, and I'm paraphrasing now, but Jesus, I didn't find the wilderness to be a place of loss, but I found it to be a place of gestation. It's a place where something new is growing. And I'd like to invite you to reflect with me and my listeners about what you meant by that statement. What does it mean to say that the wilderness is a place of gestation? For me, my wilderness experience was several years post-college as I was really grappling with what can my faith be? At this point, I had come out as gay. I still didn't have any language around gender identity. The internet was just starting to make its way to rural Pennsylvania. But I was starting to really grapple with the faith that I had been handed in my evangelical church. And I wanted to know that what I was believing in was the things that I had researched and tried and tested and not just what I had been told to believe. So I went on this journey of holding everything up to the light and saying, can I still believe this? What questions do I have about this? Who's been writing about this? Read lots and lots of books. And what I found at the end of that time wasn't an absence of faith. wasn't that I put everything aside. It was instead a depth of faith that led me to to a faith that had been tested and tried, that had been chosen, that everything that I believed in was something that I actually believed, not just that I had been told to believe or that I was scared that if I didn't believe it anymore, God would send me to hell. And when I read the story of Jesus going into the wilderness, he has this beautiful moment where he's baptized and then immediately he's led into the wilderness and he's fasting, and then he's tempted. And I saw in that story this sense of Jesus really grappling with what kind of leader am I going to be? I've had this beautiful baptism moment. I think it's time for me to start my public ministry. What is that going to look like? And I think that he had options, right? He could have come out of the wilderness and started a armed political revolt. He could have come out of the wilderness and gone back home. He could have come out of the wilderness and chosen any type of thing. And it was his experience in the wilderness with these temptations, with his experience with God that led him to come out of the wilderness and say, this is the thing that I'm going to do. And I felt that my experience was very similar of, I had to decide who is it that I'm going to be in the world What type of work am I going to do? Am I going to leave ministry? Am I going to leave Christianity? And instead, I came out of the wilderness feeling, no, actually, my work in ministry isn't done. I need to go to seminary now. This is what my faith looks like. I'm still deeply invested in Christianity. I actually need to go even deeper into the story than I ever have before. And that it was a time of gestation. It was a time that led me to something new and birthed something new in me and then me in the world. I want to now ask you about that language that you just used of something growing in you, something new about you being birthed in the world, because your time at seminary corresponded with a new understanding of yourself in your body. And it was part of your beginning of your process of transitioning. And I, I want to be careful here because correlation is not causation. And just because these two things happened at a parallel point in time doesn't mean that they were necessarily connected. So I want to carefully ask you, how did seminary help and support and how did seminary obstruct and hinder that process of coming to understand yourself differently in your body? Yeah, I think in some ways it was a happy accident that I I was at seminary when I figured out or finally had language for naming myself as transgender. The seminary, I think, gave me the space to really grapple intellectually with my faith. It gave me tools to understand how to read scripture in a new way, in a way that I had never read it before. It gave me the space to know that asking questions of texts, of theologians, of theology was a holy thing. And I think that 
permission to ask questions, to grapple, also gave me permission to interrogate my own life and to ask, what is this thing in me that still feels unnamed? And so I started reading a lot of books around gender and being trans. And the more I read, the more I felt, I think this is me. I think this is the language I've been looking for since I was 14. And so I did. I came out as trans my second year of seminary, started my medical transition while I was in seminary. And the gift that seminary really gave me was after I came out the first time and I went through this wilderness period of really trying and testing my faith, asking a lot of hard questions, learning to read scholarly texts, learning to look at scripture in that way. Again, I really divorced my emotions from it because I had to. I needed to have an intellectual faith. The gift that seminary gave was the ability to get back into my body both as a trans person, but also as a theological person and as a Christian, and to find a way to reconnect my head and my heart when dealing with my faith and grappling with my faith. And that was a gift that I wasn't expecting to get from seminary. And it was also a gift that I wasn't expecting to get from transition. And yet that's exactly what happened, that I, that suddenly as I'm in a body that matches my identity, as I'm grappling with faith in a new way, like it all came together. And I was like, oh, I have a body. I am embodied. And there are all of these stories of bodies in scripture. And I can see and read them in a new way. And I can see myself in them in a way that I've never been able to see before. And that kind of head and heart connection changed everything for me, both like physically and emotionally, but also theologically. And it was such a powerful experience and a gift I'm so, so grateful for. Well, I'm grateful for that answer because in your description of getting reconnected to your body and getting reconnected to stories about your body and to use your language, sort of recognizing yourself as embodied leads now to the second chapter on Jesus in your book, In the Margins, where you talk about Jesus in the Transfiguration and you read and reread that as a profound example of a coming out story and of learning how to integrate the narratives of what people are saying about you with the growing knowledge of who you are in yourself. And it's so layered and so complex. We're not going to be able but to just scratch the surface here in this conversation. And I encourage readers to go and check out this chapter for themselves because it's masterful. But I wonder if you can begin to lay some of the pieces out for us as you reread the story of Jesus's transfiguration. How do you read that as a coming out story? Yes, it's this beautiful story where Jesus takes kind of his inner circle aside, right? He's now got these 12 followers that are around for everything. But then in the midst of those 12, he's got these three, Peter, James, and John, who he often pulls aside or entrusts with more information. And so he takes these three up a mountain. And this is where he reveals his divinity to them. And again, we have an echo of the baptism story where a voice from heaven comes and says, this is my son, in whom I'm well pleased. And I really see this story as a moment where Jesus takes his closest friends, entrusts something new about his identity to them as a way of testing it out. He wants to see what their reaction is going to be. And their immediate response, Peter in particular, is let's build a shelter and stay here on the mountain. <laughs> like, let's not go back down. Everyone else isn't ready for this yet. And I think in some ways, Jesus wasn't ready entirely for everyone to know yet. There is a moment in one of the Gospels where Jesus says, like, don't tell anyone what I've told you. That there is a, a gradual unfolding of his identity amongst the people he's closest to. But in this moment, I think it was also... Jesus was having a realization that everything in his ministry and life was now leading him to need to go toward Jerusalem, to walk toward the seat of power and to confront it. And he knew what that was going to cost him because everyone knew in that time what confronting the seat of power was going to cost you. You were going to die. 
And I think that he was telling his friends, like, this is important. We are going to do this thing. I need to know if you're with me or not. And that it was a grappling to invite them in to see how they were going to respond. And I felt that in my own coming out of, of coming out was a process that there was always a moment of inviting people in, of wondering how they were going to respond, but of knowing that no matter how they responded, I still needed to do this thing. That This path was the one that I was on. And then I hoped people would walk with me on the path. Just I think Jesus was hoping his friends would walk with him to Jerusalem. So much there that I want to ask about and dig into. If I'm hearing what you're saying, one way of phrasing this is that in this rereading, in this reading, Jesus's experience is saying to the this core of three disciples, listen, you know me and you think you know me and you think that I'm like you and you think that I look like you, but I know something about myself inside myself that you don't know yet. I'm not like you and my body isn't quite the way that you think it is. And my experience of my body isn't quite the way that you imagine it to be. And I need to tell you about that, but I need you to be careful of what I tell you and not go telling everyone else just yet. This is going to take some time to use your phrase, it's going to be a process. As I say that back to you, I'm hearing echoes of an earlier part of our conversation about Ellen DeGeneres. I'm also hearing about your own attestations about your own experience. But when I say it in that way, and when we look at Jesus in that way, have I got it right? Or would you say it in a different way or adjust something that I'm saying? No, I absolutely think you have it right. And I think... This is where the power of reading our stories along with scripture stories lies, right? Because now we understand something emotionally about the Jesus story that maybe we didn't understand before. And also we see now in the Jesus story echoes of our own stories, which lets us know that our own process, our own journey is holy too, and is part of the work of of connecting to the divine in ourselves and in others. And I think that's it's such powerful and important work. And this is where the good stuff is when we do this and we read in this way. So as we're thinking about your own journey, and as we're talking about your own journey, I'm recognizing that the process of writing this book in the margins has been part of your journey. Like you you took your experiences and put them into this book, but then the process of standing back and reflecting on those experiences in the book alongside Scripture, that may have had an impact on you and may have changed the way that you thought about these experiences and may may have affected one of the legs of your journey. And so I want to ask, how has writing this book and thinking in a sustained analytic way about these pairings of Bible stories and your own experiences, how has that changed you, Father Kearns? It's been a really powerful experience, both to allow myself the space to be this vulnerable and to trust that it's going to be held and received well by folks who read the book. But also to realize that when we read so specifically, I'm reading these stories so specifically through my own story and lens. And some folks will say that that's selfish or that's self-centered. But I think instead what happens is it opens up space for other people to do the same thing with their own stories. I definitely don't want this book to be just like, oh, look at Father Kearns and his story. I want it to be an invitation for other people to do this work with their own stories. And it's that kind of invitation that I think is going to continue to change me and continue to change how I do theological work. Because it's going to bring me into community with other people who are reading stories and who are telling their stories. And when we tell our stories together, I think something really powerful happens. And I think that's how the world changes and shifts. And I'm excited to be a part of that. And I'm excited to see what happens as other people start to tell their stories. Well, you, you mentioned this invitation for others to tell their stories and even to reimagine their stories. And I wonder, as you've been as you've been in the process of bringing this book into the world, 
and as it has been reaching audiences. And I imagine that this is part of a process that you engage in also with your preaching and with your teaching. What have you observed? What have you seen in terms of people reimagining their stories? And what effect are you observing that have on the audiences for this book and for your work? Yeah, I think that there's something about being vulnerable that gives other people permission to be vulnerable as well. And so I'm definitely seeing that. And we've seen in our work, especially with queertheology.com, where we really teach people how to do some of what I did in the book to bring their own stories to bear, that people are having new insights into scripture and into their own stories. And they're feeling emboldened and empowered to to re-engage with scripture in a new way. We've had people say, I was really afraid to read the Bible because I didn't know if there was anything in there other than condemnation. And this method of bringing myself to scripture has helped me to re-engage the text again in a new way. And I'm now not only not afraid of it, but I'm like falling back in love with reading scripture. And that to me is that's the whole point of, of inviting people to do this work so that we can fall in love with scripture again. And so that we can continue to talk about what it looks like to bring our whole selves to the text, but also then what it looks like to be in community with other people as our whole selves and to continue the work of bringing about the kingdom of God here and now, which looks like the work of more inclusion where everyone has enough and where everyone can be grounded in their own particularity, right? This kingdom isn't an erasing of identities, It's actually an embrace of all of our very particular identities and saying that all of these identities are part of the divine and that we can only get a full picture of the divine when we can see everyone in their own particularness. And I just, I want to just hold that up for people because it's so beautiful and it's not something to be afraid of. It's something to be embraced and to relax into because it's so important and powerful. Well, Father Shannon Kearns, as a reader, I felt that invitation, and I can't say enough good things about your book in the margins. The way that it is structured, it is so clear, the way that you are laying out the process of bringing your own story alongside these Bible stories, the pieces that I got in terms of rethinking, reimagining these scripture stories along the way are invaluable to me. As a teacher, as a person who wants to be a follower of Jesus, I found that your book gave me new ways to look at texts that I have been thinking about for years, and it's such a gift. I know that it took a long time to think about how to judiciously place all of the pieces of the puzzle of this book together. I want to thank you, first of all, for the work, the analysis, the ways in which I'm sure that you bravely brought your experience into play with this analysis. Thank you for the time that you took to do that, because it really pays off for the readers. And I can't wait to share this with my students. I can't wait to share this with the listening audience here. But I also want to especially thank you for the trust and care you've given me in this conversation. Thank you for taking the time to talk about it with me and my listeners today. It's really been my pleasure. Thank you for having me and for just this incredible conversation. I'm really grateful. We've been speaking today with Father Shannon T.L. Kearns. He's an ordained priest, playwright, theologian, and the co-founder of QueerTheology.com, which has reached more than a million people all over the world through videos, articles, online classes, and community. Today, we've been talking about his recent book, In the Margins, A Transgender Man's Journey with Scripture, out recently from William B. Erdman's Publishing. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. 
You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's Facebook.com slash Things Not Seen Radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.